Hey friends, M. Faring here. I'm so glad you're joining me as we journey through the pages of God's Word, looking for the big picture story, digging deep in study, and discovering how all of this applies to our lives. Most importantly, I hope you are able to see how Jesus is found throughout it all, plus learn more about God's character and love for us along the way. Let's open our Bibles together, one chapter at a time. Okay, friends, let's begin. Hey, friends, M here. I am so happy you're joining me today as we continue our studies in the book of Genesis. If you recall, we ended our last study time in Genesis together with Joseph in prison, back in episode 36 to be exact. And yep, you heard that right, Joseph is in prison. Our dreamer is now a convict, and for doing the right thing even. Poor guy can't seem to catch a break. Truthfully though, everything in Joseph's story is happening very quickly. Well, for us anyway. In chapter 37, Joseph has those dreams, is thrown into a pit by his jealous brothers, is sold to the Ishmaelites who are passing through, to then endure a long journey through the desert. And then, in chapter 39, he is sold once again, this time to Potiphar and his wife. Oh my, his wife sure is something, isn't she? Yikes. Following false claims by Potiphar's wife, Joseph finds himself in prison. Yes, from the promised land, to slavery, to prison. This really is only getting worse for Joseph, it seems, and very quickly. (sighs) But in the middle of all this chaos, confusion, heartbreak, and injustice, there is something I can't pass by without studying a bit more, my friends. We briefly touched on it in episode 36, but I think we need to lean in again. We come across a phrase repeated over and over again in chapter 39 that I just can't get over, and I certainly don't want any of us to miss. 39.2 reads, The Lord was with Joseph. He succeeded in everything he did as he served in the home of his Egyptian master. And then we see this phrase repeated again in 39.21. But the Lord was with Joseph in prison and showed him his faithful love, and the Lord made Joseph a favorite with the prison warden. And moving on, we see the phrase another time at the end of 39.23. The Lord was with him and caused everything he did to succeed. Yep, God was with him in prison too. Wow. I can't help but think that this is just one more example in the Bible of the hard-good, good-hard story concept that we have discussed together many times already in our studies. Just in case you have no idea what I'm talking about, I'll be sure to place a link in the show notes of the extended bonus episode I did as we were ending our study in the book of Job. Honestly, even if you did already hear it when it came out near the end of September 2022, it might be worth another listen, especially considering how we see that theme, that thread, continue to play out in the stories and in the lives found throughout the pages of Genesis. In the meantime, though, let's go back to Joseph and hear a bit more of what we are seeing in his life by listening to this personality profile from the NLT Life Application Bible. It begins, As a youngster, Joseph was overconfident. His natural self-assurance, increased by being Jacob's favorite son and by knowing God's designs on his life, was unbearable to his ten older brothers, who eventually conspired against him. But this self-assurance, molded by pain and combined with personal knowledge of God, allowed him to survive and prosper where most would have failed. He added quiet wisdom to his confidence and won the hearts of everyone he met, Potiphar, the prison warden, other prisoners, the pharaoh, and after many years, even those ten brothers. Perhaps you can identify with one or more of these hardships Joseph experienced. He was betrayed and deserted by his family, exposed to sexual temptation, and punished for doing the right thing. He endured a long imprisonment as was forgotten by those he helped. As you read his story, 
Note what Joseph did in each case. His positive response transformed each setback into a step forward. He didn't spend much time asking why. His approach was, what shall I do now? Those who met Joseph were aware that wherever he went and whatever he did, God was with him. When you're facing a setback, the beginning of a Joseph-like attitude is to acknowledge that God is with you. There is nothing like his presence to shed new light on a dark situation. Did you hear that, my friends? Let's listen to that last part one more time to be sure that truth lands fully in our hearts and minds. When you're facing a setback, the beginning of a Joseph-like attitude is to acknowledge that God is with you. There is nothing like His presence to shed new light on a dark situation. Oh my, yet another example of our Emmanuel, God with us, am I right? And nope, that is absolutely not just a title of God and Jesus that we should only leave in the Christmas story. Here we see it alluded to in the story of Joseph even. Let's hold tight to that one, shall we? In the hard and the good. Now listen into this perspective about Joseph, and more importantly about the God who was with Joseph, in this excerpt from Kelly Minter's Finding God Faithful study. She begins, We can get through just about any pain or suffering if we know the Lord is in it with us, but when we feel forsaken or abandoned, our pain becomes unbearable. In a most trying circumstance, the psalmist expressed what the Lord's presence meant to him with the imagery. Even when I go through the darkest valley, I fear no evil, for you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Psalm 23, 4. In Genesis 39, we'll see the reoccurring phrase, the Lord is with Joseph. Joseph's entire story rests on these five words. They will prove to be an anchor in turbulence and reconciliation in what seems irreconcilable. In the words of Bethmore, where God does not grant our request, he will grant us his comfort. No small trade indeed. He is everything. And he will be everything for Joseph. Whenever you see the name Lord in small caps in your Bible, as it is in 39.2, it means Yahweh, the personal name of God. It is a name that would remind Israel of the covenant God made with them and of his self-existence, among other realities. The fact that the God of Israel was with Joseph in the faraway and pagan land of Egypt is so profound and comforting. There's no way to overstate it. We simply can't imagine God's reach. In our Western culture, we tend to think of God's blessings and our suffering as mutually exclusive. We think of blessing as all the good things happening in the middle of all the good times. But in Joseph's story, we discover something that challenges our mindset, even as believers. Certain blessings can only come in the midst of our suffering. In Egypt, Joseph was rising in power and position. He had found favor with his master, and his work was prospering. Still, all these blessings fell upon Joseph in a land far away from his family, and in a culture that didn't worship his God. The blessings were abounding in the midst of his suffering. For those of you who have ever wondered if your dark nights and crushing heartbreak were sure signs that God had forgotten or abandoned you, Joseph's story confidently tells us otherwise. In a faraway land, and later in a dismal prison, what more hopeful truth could be written than God was with Joseph? Whether in prison or in a palace, his presence changes everything. Perhaps above all, in this study, I hope you will gather a richer understanding of God's promises, His faithfulness to His people, and the person of Jesus toward whom Joseph's entire story is aimed. God with us. Promise Keeper. Blessings in the midst of suffering. Our faithful God. Oh, how His presence really does change everything, my friends. Okay, so before we officially begin in our studies today, I want to take one more segue to explore a thread I found that overlapped in my studies for the last OOBT Holy Week and Easter bonus episode. 
While studying Jesus' resurrection, I came across multiple scriptures from the Gospels detailing Jesus' appearance to people after he rose from the dead. One such story that I didn't have time to share in the bonus episode, but one I closely studied, is found in Luke 24, and it's a conversation between Jesus and the disciples who were walking along the road to Emmaus. They were literally walking with the resurrection, the truth, and the life, with Jesus himself, and struggled to recognize him. Interestingly enough, while I was studying for this episode about Joseph, I came across some overlapping thoughts from Nancy Guthrie in her book, The Promised One, Seeing Jesus in Genesis. She begins, What pictures are stuck on the flannel graph board of your memory from the story of Joseph? Many of us come to the story of Joseph fully stocked with Sunday school images and life lessons. We see Joseph excitedly telling his family about his dreams that suggested they will one day bow down to little brother, and we remember being taught that we should not brag. We see our multicolor crown creation of Joseph's coat of many colors and remember being taught about avoiding the jealousy that led Joseph's brothers to plot his death. We see Joseph fleeing the aggressive advances of Potiphar's wife and remember being admonished to run away from temptation. We see Joseph rising to prominence in Potiphar's house, then in the prison, and later in Pharaoh's court, and remember being taught about the rewards that come from being industrious and trustworthy. We picture Joseph's brothers bowing down to him in his Egyptian garb, unaware of who he is, and we are inspired by his example to forgive those who have hurt us. Certainly there are many life lessons to be learned from Joseph's godly example, and for some of us, this is the primary way we've read and understood the story of Joseph, as well as the rest of the Old Testament. We've come again and again to the Bible's narrative, looking for the takeaway of examples to follow, biblical principles for godly living. But is this the primary way we are to read Joseph's story and the rest of the Old Testament? Consider that Moses gave us an account of the creation of the earth and all that is in it in two chapters, and the story of the fall of humanity in one chapter. He took 11 chapters to introduce us to Abraham, the father of the people of God. Since then, we've been following the line of the promised one from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob. And if we look ahead, we realize that the promised one is not going to come through Joseph, but through his big brother Judah. So why did Moses dedicate one-third of the book of Genesis, 13 chapters, to Joseph? Perhaps Jesus can help us with this question. When Jesus was coming alongside the disciples who were walking to Emmaus, these disciples had thought that he was the Messiah, but when he was crucified, they figured he must have been wrong about him, because surely God would not allow the Savior of the world to suffer in that way. Luke chapter 24, verses 25 and 26 read, And then he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? How should they have known it was necessary that the Christ should suffer? The next verse says that beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures, the things concerning himself. Luke twenty four twenty seven. As we try to imagine what Jesus might have said as he worked his way through Genesis, we have to ask, what did Jesus say to these disciples about the story of Joseph? Do you think he worked his way through Joseph's story, using it to reinforce lessons about humility and fleeing temptation and forgiveness? More likely, when he got to the account of Joseph's life in Genesis, that what he had just said about it being necessary for the Christ to suffer before entering his glory really began to make sense. When Jesus began to explain the things concerning himself, Perhaps it was when he got to Joseph's story that it first became clear to the disciples that they should not have been so surprised that when Messiah came, he was rejected by his own people and put to death. If they had understood that the Old Testament had given them pictures and pointers of who the Messiah would be, what he would do, and how he would accomplish his work, 
they would have known that the Savior God sent would certainly suffer before he was exalted. Joseph was the first of many deliverers God sent who would picture and point to the greater deliverer God would send in his own son. Joseph's story pictured for all the generations of the people of God how this Savior's son would accomplish his saving work. Suffering before glory, rejection before acceptance, humiliation leading to exaltation, descending into the lowest pit before being raised to the highest pinnacle. When Jesus opened the minds of the disciples to understand the scriptures, perhaps he pointed to Joseph and said something like, Remember how Joseph was rejected by the sons of Jacob? So was I. Remember how Joseph's brothers wouldn't listen to what he said and conspired to kill him? So did my Jewish brothers refuse to listen to me and conspire to kill me. Remember how Joseph left his home of privilege with the father who loved him and became a slave in Egypt? That's what happened to me when I left my father's home in heaven and came to this world, taking the form of a servant. Remember how Joseph was eventually exalted to the king's right hand and his brothers came and bowed down to him. That is what is ahead for me. Surely I will ascend to my father's right hand and the day will come when every knee is going to bow and every tongue is going to confess that I am Lord. Joseph's life was a preview of the saving work of God that would ultimately be accomplished in Jesus Christ. And if we want to see how God will accomplish the salvation of his people, we will explore Joseph's story not primarily to learn from his example, but so that we might see the greater Savior to whom Joseph points. Please know that I do realize that some of those last portions I read from the Promised One book I also shared in our last episode about Joseph, and some of the ways his life was a preview to the saving work of God that would ultimately be accomplished in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Just know that I am aware and believe with 100% certainty it is worth taking the time to repeat again today. So, so good. Additionally, let's take a moment to recall in all this talk about Moses that he actually authored the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the Torah, the Pentateuch. So, with all these many things in mind, let's now move on to our reading of chapter 40 and 41 in Genesis from the New Living Translation. Chapter 40 begins. Some time later, Pharaoh's chief cupbearer and chief baker offended their royal master. Pharaoh became angry with these two officials and put them in the prison where Joseph was, in the palace of the captain of the guard. They remained in prison for quite some time, and the captain of the guard assigned them to Joseph, who looked after them. While they were in prison, Pharaoh's cupbearer and baker each had a dream one night, and each dream had its own meaning. When Joseph saw them the next morning, he noticed that they both looked upset. Why do you look so worried today, he asked them. And they replied, We both had dreams last night, but no one can tell us what they mean. Interpreting dreams is God's business, Joseph replied. Go ahead and tell me your dreams. So the chief cupbearer told Joseph his dream first. In my dream, he said, I saw a great vine in front of me. The vine had three branches that began to bud and blossom, and soon it produced clusters of ripe grapes. I was holding Pharaoh's wine cup in my hand, so I took a cluster of grapes and squeezed the juice into the cup. Then I placed it in Pharaoh's hand. This is what the dream means, Joseph said. The three branches represent three days. Within three days, Pharaoh will lift you up and restore you to your position as his chief cupbearer. And please remember me, and do me a favor when things go well for you. Mention me to Pharaoh so he might let me out of this place. For I was kidnapped from my homeland, the land of the Hebrews, and now I'm here in prison. But I did nothing to deserve it. When the chief baker saw that Joseph had given the first dream such positive interpretation, he said to Joseph, I had a dream too. In my dream, there were three baskets of white pastries stacked on my head. The top basket contained all kinds of pastries for Pharaoh, but the birds came and ate them from the basket on my head. This is what the dream means, Joseph told him. The three baskets also represent three days. 
Three days from now, Pharaoh will lift you up and impale your body on a pole. Then the birds will come and peck away at your flesh. Pharaoh's birthday came three days later, and he prepared a banquet for all his officials and staff. He summoned his chief cupbearer and chief baker to join the other officials. He then restored the chief cupbearer to his former position so he could again hand Pharaoh his cup. But Pharaoh impaled the chief baker, just as Joseph had predicted when he interpreted his dream. Pharaoh's chief cupbearer, however, forgot all about Joseph, never giving him another thought. Continuing on, Genesis 41 reads, Two full years later, Pharaoh dreamed that he was standing on the bank of the Nile River. In his dream, he saw seven fat, healthy cows come up out of the water and begin grazing in the marsh grass. Then he saw seven more cows come behind them from the Nile, but these were scrawny and thin. These cows stood beside the fat cows on the riverbank. Then the scrawny, thin cows ate the seven healthy fat cows. At this point in the dream, Pharaoh woke up. But he fell asleep again and had a second dream. This time he saw seven heads of grain, plump and beautiful, growing on a single stalk. Then seven more heads of grain appeared, but these were shriveled and withered by the east wind. And these thin heads swallowed up the seven plump, well-formed heads. Then Pharaoh woke up again and realized it was a dream. The next morning, Pharaoh was very disturbed by the dreams. So he called for all the magicians and wise men of Egypt. When Pharaoh told them his dreams, not one of them could tell him what they meant. Finally, the king's chief cupbearer spoke up. Today I have been reminded of my failure, he told Pharaoh. Some time ago, you were angry with the chief baker and me, and you imprisoned us in the palace of the captain of the guard. One night, the chief baker and I had a dream, and each dream had its own meaning. There was a young Hebrew man with us in the prison who was a slave of the captain of the guard. We told him our dreams, and he told us what each of our dreams meant, and everything happened just as he had predicted. I was restored to my position as cupbearer, and the chief baker was executed and impaled on a pole. Pharaoh sent for Joseph at once, and he was quickly brought from the prison. After he shaved and changed his clothes, he went in and stood before Pharaoh. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, I had a dream last night, and no one here can tell me what it means. But I have heard that when you hear about a dream, you can interpret it. It is beyond my power to do this, Joseph replied. But God can tell you what it means and set you at ease. So Pharaoh told Joseph his dream. In my dream, he said, I was standing on a bank of the Nile River, and I saw seven fat, healthy cows come up out of the river and begin grazing in the marsh grass. But then I saw seven sick-looking cows, scrawny and thin, come up after them. I have never seen such sorry-looking animals in all the land of Egypt. These thin, scrawny cows ate the fat cows. But afterward, you wouldn't have known it, for they were still thin and scrawny as before. Then I woke up. In my dream, I also saw seven heads of grain, full and beautiful, growing on a single stalk. Then seven more heads of grain appeared. But these were blighted, shriveled, and withered by the east wind. And the shriveled heads swallowed the seven healthy heads, I told these dreams to the magicians, but no one could tell me what they mean. Joseph responded, Both of Pharaoh's dreams mean the same thing. God is telling Pharaoh in advance what he is about to do. The seven healthy cows and the seven healthy heads of grain both represent seven years of prosperity. The seven thin, scrawny cows that came up later and the seven thin heads of grain withered by the east wind represent seven years of famine. This will happen just as I have described it, for God has revealed to Pharaoh in advance what he is about to do. The next seven years will be a period of great prosperity throughout the land of Egypt, but afterward there will be seven years of famine so great that all the prosperity will be forgotten in Egypt. Famine will destroy the land. This famine will be so severe that even the memory of the good years will be erased. As for having two similar dreams, it means that these events have been decreed by God, and He will soon make them happen. Therefore, 
Pharaoh should find an intelligent and wise man and put him in charge of the entire land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh should appoint supervisors over the land and let them collect one-fifth of all the crops during the seven good years. Have them gather all the food produced in the good years that are just ahead and bring it to Pharaoh's storehouses. Store it away and guard it so there will be food in the cities. That way there will be enough to eat when the seven years of famine come to the land of Egypt. Otherwise, this famine will destroy the land. Joseph's suggestions were well received by Pharaoh and his officials. So Pharaoh asked the officials, Can we find anyone else like this man so obviously filled with the Spirit of God? Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has revealed the meaning of the dreams to you, clearly no one else is as intelligent or wise as you are. You will be in charge of my court, and all my people will take orders from you. Only I, sitting on my throne, will have a higher rank than yours. Pharaoh said to Joseph, I hereby put you in charge of the entire land of Egypt. Then Pharaoh removed his signet ring from his hand and placed it on Joseph's finger. He dressed him in fine linen clothing and hung a gold chain around his neck. Then he had Joseph ride in the chariot reserved for his second in command. And wherever Joseph went, the command was shouted, Kneel down! So Pharaoh put Joseph in charge of all Egypt. And Pharaoh said to him, I am Pharaoh, but no one will lift a hand or foot in the entire land of Egypt without your approval. Then Pharaoh gave Joseph a new Egyptian name, Zepanath Penath, and he also gave him a wife whose name was Asenath. She was a daughter of Potiphar, the priest of On. So Joseph took charge of the entire land of Egypt. He was thirty years old when he began serving in the court of Pharaoh, the king of Egypt. And when Joseph left Pharaoh's presence, he inspected the entire land of Egypt. As predicted, for seven years the land produced bumper crops. During those years, Joseph gathered all the crops grown in Egypt and stored the grain from the surrounding fields in the cities. He piled up huge amounts of grain like sand on the seashore. Finally, he stopped keeping records because there was too much to measure. During this time, before the first of the famine years, two sons were born to Joseph and his wife. Joseph named the older son Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my troubles and everyone in my father's family. Joseph named his second son Ephraim, for he said, God has made me fruitful in this land of my grief. At last, the seven years of bumper crops throughout the land of Egypt came to an end. Then the seven years of famine began, just as Joseph had predicted. The famine also struck all the surrounding countries, but throughout Egypt there was plenty of food. Eventually, however, the famine spread throughout the land of Egypt as well. And when the people cried out to Pharaoh for food, he told them, Go to Joseph and do whatever he tells you. So with severe famine everywhere, Joseph opened up the storehouses and distributed grain to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe enough in the land of Egypt, and people from all around came to Egypt to buy grain from Joseph, because the famine was severe throughout the world. Goodness gracious, I don't know about you, my friends, but I can't help but think about the saying I have often heard that says, when it's not God's time, you can't force it. When it is God's time, you can't stop it. Two full years of waiting for the chief cupbearer to remember his promise to Joseph, and then, at once... He was quickly brought from prison, cleaned up, and standing before Pharaoh, from the prison to the palace in a matter of moments. Only in God's timing could something that miraculous happen. Listen into this perspective from First Five's Genesis study that reads, We previously read how the Lord was with Joseph and showed him kindness while he was in prison. We learned that Joseph intentionally chose to honor God with his actions and attitudes. Instead of becoming bitter, Joseph always remained busy doing what was right. He made it his ambition to work with excellence before God, no matter the circumstances. As a result, he was put in charge because God's favor was evident in his life. Even though God never forgot Joseph, others did. One day, there in prison, he noticed the king's cupbearer and baker who were also in custody, and they were troubled. 
He showed them kindness and concern and cared enough to ask why they were sad. He discovered it was because of dreams they both had. Joseph stressed God is the one who interprets dreams before he asked about theirs. After listening, he truthfully proceeded to share each dream's interpretation. The interpretations came to pass just as Joseph had said. The cupbearer was restored and the baker was killed. Joseph had only requested that the cupbearer kindly remember him before Pharaoh when he was restored. But the cupbearer didn't remember. He forgot him. As a result, Joseph sat in prison, forgotten, for two long years. We forget others. Others forget us. But God never forgets us. Sometimes we forget that God never forgets us. But He never does. At precisely the right time, God would cause a cupbearer to remember Joseph. Are you feeling forgotten or overlooked by God? Thinking, will I be here forever? What did I do to deserve this? God, haven't I served you faithfully? Have you abandoned me? The amazing life-giving news in all of our forgetfulness is that God never forgets us. He is always working in our lives for our good and His glory, no matter our circumstances. Romans 8, 28. Continuing on, let's hear some more thoughts about Joseph from Nancy Guthrie in the Promised One book. Thoughts about the importance of leading in the hard places. That God put Joseph in all these places and gave him favor to lead and how we have and will continue to see that carry through the remainder of this story. Yet one more reminder that God is found in the hard places, just as much, if not more so, than the easier good ones. Oh my, difficult and true at the same time, right? We'll also hear a bit about Joseph's ability to interpret dreams, and how it was for God's glory, not his own. And Joseph was sure to make that clear, to the cupbearer, chief baker, and pharaoh even. Friends, it's so important for us to do the same when we step into the things God asks us to do, the things we are called to do, for the good of others and the glory of God, full stop. And that reminds me of the Call to Go in 2023 episode of OOBT earlier this year. I so hope you've already had a chance to listen to that one, my OOBTers. I know it was convicting and encouraging to me to write and speak into the mic. My prayers it does the same for all who listen to it. Yep, I'll link it in the show notes just in case you want to listen in for the first time or even as a refresher. (laughs) Okay, now back to Nancy Guthrie and the Promised One book. She says, At the very beginning of his covenant relationship with his chosen people, God predicted tremendous suffering ahead for his people. In Genesis chapter 15, verses 13 and 14, the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs and will be servants there and they will be afflicted for four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. God's people would suffer, and it would not be wasted, meaningless suffering. It would be fruitful suffering. They would emerge from Egypt with great wealth and great in number, preserved as a race rather than intermarried with the Canaanites. How would they become strangers in a foreign land? Through the suffering and salvation of Joseph. After dreaming his dreams, it is certain that spending years as a slave and then years in a foreign prison was not the trajectory Joseph anticipated for his life. That is not the pathway to becoming the exalted leader of his family that Joseph expected. Certainly Joseph must have wondered at times if something had gone terribly wrong with God's plan for his future and the future of his family. Yet when we hear Joseph speak during those years of captivity, it is not complaint or self-pity or rage that we hear. Over and over again we hear him speak of God in great submission and confidence. When Potiphar's wife tried to seduce him, he said, How then can I do this great wickedness and sin against God? Genesis 39, 9. 
No one from his family was around to see his sin, and certainly no one in this culture would have blinked an eye, since sexual promiscuity was a daily part of all slaveholding households. But Joseph knew that God was with him and that God would see, so it was unthinkable to him. When he interpreted dreams in prison and for Pharaoh, he said, It is not me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Genesis 41.16 Joseph not only knew God was with him, but he also knew God was at work in him, working through him. Joseph did not assume that his suffering was a sign that God had forgotten him or abandoned him. Over and over again in his story, we read that the Lord was with him, and whatever he did, the Lord made it succeed. Genesis 39.23 How different Joseph was from the way we are. We are so quick to assume that if God is with us, there will be no pit, no pain. When the unthinkable happens to us, we accuse God of abandoning us, not caring about us, not loving us. Because we think it is God's job to hover around us, ensuring our comfort. Whenever we find ourselves in a hard and dark place, we think that God has somehow fallen down on the job. Far from complaining or becoming embittered about his suffering, Joseph emerged from prison celebrating what God was doing through his life by means of the suffering. Before the years of famine came, two sons were born to Joseph. Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, priest of On, bore him these sons. Joseph called the name of the first Manasseh, for he said, God has made me forget all my hardship and all my father's house. The name of the second was called Ephraim, for God has made me fruitful in the land of my affliction. Genesis 41, verses 50-52 Born to him in Egypt by an Egyptian wife, Joseph gave his sons Hebrew names, confident that God was not finished working through him on behalf of his people. The names were in fact songs of praise to God both for the work God had done in Joseph to keep him from becoming bitter toward his brothers and for the work that God had done through Joseph to bless the people of Egypt. Joseph had eyes to see that his suffering had not gone to waste. It was not random or meaningless, but fruitful. Joseph didn't turn his attention to being fruitful only after the season of suffering was over. In the land of his affliction, in the middle of the struggle, in the heart of the darkness, Joseph was confident that God was at work. But was there ever a more fruitful sufferer than Jesus? Surely the fruitfulness of Joseph's suffering was a foreshadowing of the eternally abundant fruitfulness of the suffering of Christ. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 8 and 9. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. If you have turned to Christ in faith, you are part of the great harvest of fruit produced through the suffering of Christ. Moving on to a section titled Exalted Savior, it reads, One day, Joseph was at the very bottom. How could one have sunk any lower than a Hebrew slave in an Egyptian prison? But in just one day, Joseph went from the bottom to the very top. In one day, he went from the pit of prison to the palace of Pharaoh. Joseph interpreted Pharaoh's dreams, which predicted a coming famine. And when Joseph outlined a plan to Pharaoh for preparing for the famine, Pharaoh not only accepted the plan, but also put Joseph in charge, making him prime minister of all Egypt. Genesis 41, verses 48 and 49. Joseph gathered up all the food of these seven years which occurred in the land of Egypt and put the food in the cities. He put in every city the food from the fields around it. And Joseph stored up grain in great abundance, like the sand of the sea, until he ceased to measure it, for it could not be measured. Seven years later, when the time of famine came and the hungry came to Egypt, after hearing about the storehouses of grain, Pharaoh sent them to Joseph. Pharaoh said to all the Egyptians, Go to Joseph. What he says to you, do. So when the famine had spread over all the land, Joseph opened all the storehouses and sold to the Egyptians, for the famine was severe in the land of Egypt. 
Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to Joseph to buy grain, because the famine was severe over all the earth. Genesis chapter 41, verses 55 through 57. Here, as in many other ways, Joseph points us to the heart of the ministry of Jesus, the one who said in John chapter 6, verse 35, I am the bread of life, whoever comes to me shall not hunger. Just as Joseph was the one to whom the whole world came to be fed, just as he became the Savior of the world in his day, so Jesus is the one to whom the whole world must come. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under the heaven given among men by which we must be saved. Acts chapter 4, verse 12. It must have been that day, when Joseph's brothers first showed up in Egypt and bowed themselves before him, with their faces to the ground, that everything finally clicked into place for Joseph. Just as he had dreamed so many years ago, his brothers were bowing before him. God had given him the dream, and God had brought it about. His recognition of God's invisible hand at work in his circumstances, even in the cruelty of his brothers, left no room for bitterness. From this vantage point, he could see that in all of his suffering, all of the humiliations of slavery, all the discomforts of prison, all the years longing for the kindness of his father and the comforts of home, God had been at work, putting him in the place to provide for his family when the famine came. This was not just any family that needed to be saved. This was the family from whom the promised one would come. These were the people God had called out from all the people of the world for himself, who were destined to live in the land God had promised to them, where they would produce the son who would be the great savior. As the children of Israel read Joseph's story as they prepared to enter the promised land, they must have grown in confidence that God would continue to provide for them and guide them in his providence. Let's move on to read Genesis chapter 42 from the New Living Translation. When Jacob heard that grain was available in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why are you standing around looking at one another? I have heard there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy enough grain to keep us alive. Otherwise we'll die. So Joseph's ten older brothers went down to Egypt to buy grain. But Jacob wouldn't let Joseph's younger brother Benjamin go with them, for fear some harm might come to him. So Jacob's sons arrived in Egypt along with others to buy food, for the famine was in Canaan as well. Since Joseph was governor of all Egypt and in charge of selling grain to all the people, it was to him that his brothers came. When they arrived, they bowed before him with their faces to the ground. Joseph recognized his brothers instantly, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where are you from? he demanded. The land of Canaan, they replied. We have come to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they didn't recognize him, and he remembered the dreams he'd had about them many years before. He said to them, You are spies. You have come to see how vulnerable our land has become. No, my lord, they exclaimed. Your servants have simply come to buy food. We are all brothers, members of the same family. We are honest men, sir. We are not spies. Yes, you are, Joseph insisted. You have come to see how vulnerable our land has become. Sir, they said, there are actually twelve of us. We, your servants, are all brothers, sons of a man living in the land of Canaan. Our youngest brother is back there with our father right now, and one of our brothers is no longer with us. But Joseph insisted, As I said, you are spies. This is how I will test your story. I swear by the life of Pharaoh that you will never leave Egypt unless your youngest brother comes here. One of you must go and get your brother. I'll keep the rest of you here in prison. Then we'll find out whether or not your story is true. By the life of Pharaoh, if it turns out that you don't have a younger brother, then I'll know you are spies. So Joseph put them all in prison for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, I am a God-fearing man. If you do as I say, you will live. If you really are honest men, choose one of your brothers to remain in prison. The rest of you may go home with grain for your starving families. But you must bring back your youngest brother to me. 
This will prove that you are telling the truth, and you will not die. To this they agreed. Speaking among themselves, they said, Clearly we are being punished because of what we did to Joseph long ago. We saw his anguish when he pleaded for his life, but we wouldn't listen. That's why we're in this trouble. Didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy, Reuben asked, but you wouldn't listen, and now we have to answer for his blood. Of course they did not know that Joseph understood them, for he had been speaking to them through an interpreter. Now he turned away from them and began to weep. When he regained his composure, he spoke to them again. Then he chose Simeon from among them and had him tied up right before their eyes. Joseph then ordered his servants to fill the men's sacks with grain, but he also gave secret instructions to return each brother's payment at the top of his sack. He also gave them supplies for their journey home. So the brothers loaded their donkeys with grain and headed for home. But when they stopped for the night and one of them opened his sack to get grain for his donkey, he found his money at the top of the sack. Look, he exclaimed to his brothers, my money has been returned. It's here in my sack. Then their hearts sank. Trembling, they said to each other, what has God done to us? When the brothers came to their father, Jacob, in the land of Canaan, they told him everything that had happened to them. The man who was governor of the land spoke very harshly to us, they told him. He accused us of being spies scouting the land. But we said, We are honest men, not spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of one father. One brother is no longer with us, and the youngest is at home with our father in the land of Canaan. Then the man who is governor of the land told us, This is how I will find out if you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers here with me, and take grain for your starving families, and go on home. But you must bring your youngest brother back to me. Then I will know you are honest men, and not spies. Then I will give you back your brother, and you may trade freely in the land. As they emptied out their sacks, there in each man's sack was the bag of money they had paid for the grain. The brothers and their father were terrified when they saw the bags of money. Jacob exclaimed, You are robbing me of my children. Joseph is gone, Simeon is gone, and now you want to take Benjamin too. Everything is going against me. Then Reuben said to his father, You may kill my two sons if I don't bring Benjamin back to you. I will be responsible for him, and I promise to bring him back. But Jacob replied, My son will not go down with you. His brother Joseph is dead, and he has all I have left. If anything should happen to him on your journey, you would send this grieving white-haired man to his grave. Oh, friends, it seems the end of chapter 42 leaves us at a cliffhanger of sorts as to what will happen next in this unfolding story of Joseph his brothers, and even their father, Jacob. Listen into this from First Five Genesis study regarding Genesis chapter 42, verses 6 and 7. This is a story of impossibility. Joseph's brothers had wanted to kill him and had succeeded in getting him sold into slavery. Twenty years later, and now at his professional zenith, he stands as the second most powerful man in Egypt, holding the fate of his brothers in his hands. It appears that Joseph intends to use this opportunity to kind of stick it to his brothers, he seemingly hatches a plan to punish them for their trickery and deceit. If this was his intention, we would wonder, how could God ever fix this family friction? Surely their relationships were beyond repair. Remember, no matter how bad things seem, our God is a fixer, a repairer, a doer of the impossible. Joseph is a man who had faithfully trusted the Lord at each unimaginable turn of his life. If being sold into slavery didn't make him bitter, if being wrongly imprisoned didn't sour his faith, and seeing his brothers didn't awaken some unmet need for revenge. Joseph's plan isn't revenge, it's reconciliation. He uses creative means to discern the nature of his brothers' hearts. Had they softened? Were they sorry? Had God begun to heal the years of hurt? Joseph trusted his God of impossibility. Over and over he had seen God do the unimaginable and improbable. And at each area of impossibility, God proved himself more than able, no matter the need. When we are dealing with difficult relationships or impossible circumstances, 
We must trust our God and trust the mustard seed of faith we hold that God still resurrects even the most desperate situations. His process may be long and painful, but His plans are perfect. And in the more moments about Genesis 42 portion of First Five's Genesis study, it reads, From a very young age, Joseph had a discerning heart regarding God's plans for his life. He was not so discerning as to how and when he should share those plans, however. Part of the significance of this passage is that it brings God's promises to Joseph full circle. Remember the dreams he kind of bragged about that infuriated his brothers and parents? Imagine how Joseph's faith in God must have been strengthened by this interaction with his brothers. Despite the years of trials and waiting, Joseph was seen the fulfillment of those dreams by his always faithful God. Truthfully, there is so much more we can say here, but I promise we'll be studying this and even more interactions to come between all these brothers before we end our time in Genesis together. With that said, and as we end our time today, friends, I would like us to take a moment to join together in prayer. Father God, please help each one of us to recognize that like Joseph, we don't need to question you in our times of suffering, your nearness, or your ultimate unfolding plan for our lives and the lives of those around us. Help us to serve you with excellence, regardless of our circumstances. God, you are faithful and you never forget us. Life's challenging circumstances can make us bitter, but we know that you, Father God, want to use them to make us better. Help us to know deep in our hearts that although it's true that suffering is a part of this broken world and sometimes a devastating result of sin, you can and will use our sufferings for your greater good. Though our suffering can be extremely painful, it can have purpose when we allow you, God, at the center of it. Is our suffering easy? Absolutely not. Are you with us in the suffering? God with us? Absolutely yes. Amazing, just amazing, Father God. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Don't forget that new episodes come out every other Wednesday, so be sure to subscribe so you never miss one. Subscribing is the best way to never miss an episode. I will just show up in your podcast app every other Wednesday, ready to study with you. And if you have liked this episode, I would be so blessed if you would take a moment to rate and review the Open Our Bibles Together podcast. And I would be so thankful if you would mention it to a friend or two, maybe even share this on Instagram, Facebook, or wherever you do social media. It sounds simple, but all these things really do help others to not only find OOBT, but also connect with God through Bible study alongside us. Wouldn't it be great if more people fell in love with their Bible the way that we have? I think so too. So please rate, review, and share today. Thanks in advance. You are all the absolute best listeners and Bible study partners. This is M. Faring, and I can't wait until we open our Bibles together next time, my friends. Thank you.